we might call the theme of this evening talk again understanding and equanimity well, number two and uh, again I will first try to clarify once again uh, major themes we've been talking about these days attachment and then suffering and impermanence and anatta and then if there is some time left I'll try to say something about a chapter called going home um, maybe tomorrow night Larry will be talking about suffering impermanence anatta <laughs> and you know the problem is not is not that we are talking several nights in a stretch the problem is that on Sunday we have to stop talking about these things and when one practices those themes just stick out by themselves more and more <coughs> it's not, it's not uh, some intellectual fascination I've seen in our groups that a number of people seem to have problems with um, explanations uh, keyed on the concept of kilesa and it's understandable because uh, especially if, you ha- if we have a certain religious conditioning a certain religious background um, kilesas defilements, impurities these concepts can easily uh, bring up to the surface some old conditioning in terms of sin, sins and, uh, and therefore trigger a negative reaction in us uh, like committing a sin and then having to atone that sin and uh, having a duty to feel guilty about that sin you know, that kind of and um, one thing we should be aware of is this is has to do with a superficial uh, superstitious magic level in my opinion of religiosity and uh, the um, situation is that we are very familiar with superficial religiosity, superficial Christianity in the West and we are only familiar with contemplative Buddhism but there is also superficial Buddhism and there was this very learned and nice monk who was translated for Upandita in the last couple of months Nyanapurnik who every now and then would would give an example of superficial Buddhism like trying to be generous, to cultivate generosity in order to win a case in court or <laughs> in order to have children so this is all over the world, it's the same there is a level, this level of religiosity no matter what's called but there is a deeper level of religiosity and so in Christianity as well there is a serious contemplative spiritual tradition in which the purification of the mind works more or less the same way we are uh, 
uh, we are seeing it these days. So we, I think we shouldn't worry about those, um, those um, reactions, which are obviously due to some, uh, to some conditioning. Um, also, getting worried about kilesis is another kilesis. And um, there is a very nice passage, and this is from an unpublished manuscript, so I don't think I can uh, quote, but there's a famous uh, uh, Thai master and someone who has been working with him, and he reports that one day he told him, don't be in a hurry to get rid of your defilements. He once told me. I asked why, and he said that I should patiently get to know Dukkha and its causes well. Then I could abandon them thoroughly, just as it is better for your digestion if you chew your food slowly and thoroughly. So we shouldn't get frantic about, about chilesis. And also it is helpful to have a look to the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, to the Nikayas, where it is very clearly stated that the mind is intrinsically luminous, papasvarachittam. And the kilesas are agantuka, which means adventitious, which means that the kilesas, no matter how ingrained and painful they are, are not a necessary part of our mind, are not natural. The mind, citta or heart mind, is naturally luminous. And then uh, the kilesas are not part of this intrinsic nature. So, good news. It's <laughs> 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 also helpful if we, instead of thinking in the plural, you know, kilesas, we keep in mind a unitive model, like we've been saying, reactive mind. The reactive mind as being opposed to the flexible mind, the mind which is worked upon by the practice and which can work with everything which arises. So on the one hand, the reactive mind, the judging mind, the stiff and tight mind, and on the other hand, through the practice, the soft mind, the open mind, the mind which is ready to work all the time. If we think in terms of reactive mind, we have all these kilesas, attachment, aversion, delusion, um, put together into this one thing, because whenever and wherever there is one kilesa-like attachment, the rest is also, you know, in the vicinity. Uh, <laughs> fear and aversion and delusion are always, you know, intertwined, tightly intertwined together. 
So we've been trying to focus and we will be trying to focus in our practice upon the, our reactive mind and on the suffering which emanates from our reactive mind. This is, you know, this is the basic work, the groundwork. As we said, to perceive, really perceive, feel the suffering which kind of oozes by this reactive mind. And the deception which goes on all the time when we try to look at the reactive mind with a reactive mind, with the same mind. And so we miss sati, we miss awareness because we are just being contagious, getting contagion, so to speak, by that mind which we want to observe impartially. And we can, we can do this, but it takes time. Uh, the Buddha said, I, will, I would not ask you all this if I didn't know that this is possible. Because of attachment, because of the reactive mind, attachment, aversion, delusion, suffering comes. And one of the forms of suffering is not really accepting impermanence. Because of attachment, we do not accept impermanence. And therefore, again, we suffer. The truth of impermanence is something which we hear, or something which we think, but it, it is very hard to accept, to own. Because of attachment, because of our reactive mind, we have, most of the time, an unpleasant reaction to impermanence. And that is because of attachment. Sometimes we can have a pleasant reaction to impermanence, and that is because of attachment as well. You know, maybe in long retreats, sometimes we feel delighted that days go by. But that's because of attachment as well. Non-accepting impermanence, non-accepting constant change, resisting change in many forms, subtle forms, dramatic forms, is a major source of suffering. It's, it makes it impossible to be in the present moment if we resist impermanence, forget about being in the present moment. Suppose we have been, um, I don't know, taking a brisk walk, or we've been jogging, and we feel in a very good shape, and the air is crisp, and on our way home, in this state of high energy, and uh, <coughs> invigorated, we stop by a pharmacy to buy something. And we get into the pharmacy, 
and there is a long line and it is crowded and it is stuffy and it, everything gets, the, our energy changes and we are from this uh, high energy breezy thing to, into this totally different field of energy. Now if we don't accept impermanence, we start suffering and we start basically turning our back to this situation. It was so good. This is our uh, voice. So once again, we do not jump into the next situation. And we are not available to life. We are not available to what is happening because we are caught into what was happening. No equanimity is possible. We are trapped. Now, I think I chose deliberately a, a small everyday life example because I think that we should become quite skillful in working with small resistances to change in order to have a solid base and having that base then it becomes realistic to work with resistance to major changes. But if we have a hard time, you know, working with these ongoing small resistances to change throughout the day, then it's not realistic to expect uh, full acceptance of impermanence in more dramatic situations in life. So I think an important, an important part of daily practice is, you know, being aware of this constant, this constant resistance and, and, and getting stuck instead of accepting impermanence. Uh, it, it feels like there is one, this, there is the, on the one hand there is impermanence and on the other hand there is this permanent resistance on our part to it. We are constantly surprised by impermanence. We are constantly disappointed by impermanence. So we don't learn the truth of impermanence. We don't know the truth of impermanence. We haven't realized the truth of impermanence. Otherwise we wouldn't be surprised every time or disappointed every time. And again, the key is the reactive mind. Because of attachment, because of not accepting impermanence, we have a hard time facing this other reality, which is called anatta. I think the first thing to be remembered, to be kept in mind, is that it is said that everything is anatta. Everything has anatta nature. It is not that human beings 
are anatta, no self, and then all the rest has a core. But everything is defined as being coreless, as being a process, a constant process, and not being something solid, something with definite boundaries, something permanent, and something independent. This would be the opposite of anatta, this would be atta. It is said instead that everything flows and everything is interdependent with everything. There is not such thing as something solid with fixed boundaries and permanent and independent. Now up to this point we can follow, but unless one has had a real profound experience of anatta, I think that what in another tradition, I'm thinking of St. Augustine in the Christian tradition, he said is very much to the point. Somewhere St. Augustine says, he's uh, talking to someone, and he says, this is an explanation about God. Do you understand? And the person says, yes, then that is not God. <laughs> In other words, the mystery of anatta. And since everything is anatta, the mystery of everything. So we, we uh, can have hints which helps our basic understanding, but then upon this base of understanding, you know, something else has to happen in order for us to really uh, realize and penetrate the reality of no self, the reality of emptiness. Of course, uh, sometimes the language can create problems. And I don't think that we have to assume that the only language of truth is Pali and, it's, and the clumsy translations in Western languages. There are other ways of formulating, of expressing the truth. The truth does not change, otherwise it would not be the truth. But ways in which we talk about the truth are connected with the mind. And, and, you know, you might have a, uh, have had a hunch of what the mind is like in the uh, past seven days. So the formulation, the names, the expressions uh, are really something we change. And I think we should experiment and contribute to this understanding at this level. I don't think, I don't, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about deep uh, realization. Because sometimes, because of certain language, um, we can misunderstand. Of course, we, we, if we don't have a proper guidance. And uh, people can get depressed with this thing of anatta. It's as though, you know, from painful samsara, one lands to this holy desert. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, I'm coreless, my friends are coreless, and uh, <laughs> everyone is coreless, and uh, 
we might even drop our names and address one another like five aggregates or something like that <laughs> because no names, what, what's the point? That the name is ego, the name is... And that kind of um, you know, negative associations. But if we just think of it, being empty of this imputed, solid, imagined core actually means or implies space, implies openness, implies freedom, and is the opposite of cramming up, of stuffing, which is very clearly uh, explained in the text, the process of abhisankara, which is constant accumulation, constant imputation, constant concussion. We make me, we make things, we make other people. We are busy, are, are constantly busy solidifying everything and making it like, like something which can stay and we put it on a shelf and then we pick it up and look at it again. No, things, we want uh, labels and, and, and solid, definite things with proper boundaries and all that. But it is said that this is a process of uh, solidification that is, and this is the crucial point, due to our reactive mind. The constructing, the solidifying factor is attachment. Attachment is the power and attachment is the glue which, which put together things and solidifies events. Just think about ourselves, about our history, how solid we think it, it is. What happened that day and the other day. And we have, you know, like this uh, uh, package of movies inside. And that's, this is me. We identify, we identify with that. We identify with uh, all our memories. And anatta is just keeping open or being more and more aware of this abhisankara process, of this constant process of concussion, of uh, building up, of accumulation, again and again. And instead of getting lighter and lighter, we get heavier and heavier because of all this incredible work of putting together and never dissolving lighting up. It's as though as the years go by, the weight of atta, of solidifying everything, increases. And it shows from the faces of people you know, how much we've been piling up, how much we've been accumulating, how much we've been concocting. It's more, it's heavier and heavier. Anatta is the other way around. Anatta is the gradual thinning out of the kilesas. You know, the less powerful kilesas are, the more anatta 
can shine through. But the more the kilesas are at work, the heavier atta, this constant imputation of solidity, is. Everything is solid. Everything is one against the other, right? Because there are boundaries everywhere. There is fragmentation and separation everywhere. Now, but there is another thing to be remembered, and it is that anatta is also the quality of nirvana. There is no dukkha, no suffering in nirvana, and there is no impermanence. The reverse is true, but there is anatta. So anatta is everywhere is the quality which links up, you know, all the worlds, so to speak, and anatta being the uh, uh, major uh, characteristic of nirvana seems to be like this divine quality which is present everywhere. As Thich Nhat Hanh would put it, you know, we think we are a wave only, and we forget that we are the ocean. We identify with the wave and we uh, solidify the wave and we see only the wave. And we forget that the wave is something very ephemeral. We forget that there is the ocean. So going beyond atta means going beyond this incessant solidification. It means that the boundaries keep dissolving. So it is as though we should be prepared to realize that we are much less than what we think we are because the wave is like that and we think that it's there and we can look at it, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, we are much less. And at the same time, that we are much more, because we are the ocean at the same time. Because of functioning, we need that limitation, that putting borders, solidification, but is it, this is functional reality, samutti, samriti, in order to be able to function. The painful uh, part of it is that we mistake functional reality for ultimate reality, and from there suffering comes, because we assume that is, this is, uh, this fragmentation and solidification is permanent. If there are no boundaries, uh, really things and beings become very mysterious, becomes ungraspable, ungraspable. Anatta is being ungraspable. We might maybe renew our understanding of something which is very well known at IMS. We live in illusion. 
and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are, we are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. This is Kalu Rinpoche. And once we are so much more loosened up in terms of attachment, in terms of accepting impermanence, and seeing it as just flow, our capacity for being in the present is much higher, and therefore capacity for equanimity, understanding that the present is always now, that now is the only reality, that it is always now. We think of the future, we think of the past, now. We can't think in any other time. It always happens now. So the only reality is now. This is another way of talking about anatta. As soon as we are out of the now, we are manufacturing, concocting again. But as long as we stay in the now, there is no atta. And now, and now, and now, we are totally open. <coughs> and equanimity becomes possible, and the two major fruits, wisdom, and compassion also become available. In a couple of days, we'll be coming, we'll be going home. And a few thoughts may be helpful, I think, I hope. We might think of two parts. One, the first part is support for the practice, and the second part is actual practice. I think in terms of support for the practice, um, the place we live in, the work we do, and the people we live with is very essential. And this is, on the one hand, very obvious, and the, on the other hand, is not very obvious, because time and again, because of our reactive mind, we can forget and become very casual about this, which constitutes the support for our practice. The place, house, apartment, whatever, especially if we live in big cities, should be a very comfortable, a very cozy, and very clean and orderly place if we want our practice to be facilitated. It is essential. Many of you might have experiences of monasteries both in the East and in the West. And we know what a difference it makes when we arrive at a monastery where everything is orderly and spotless and how much inspired we feel to practice. And 
what the difference it makes when the monastery is pretty sloppy. So it's the same, exactly the same with our place. And if it is a big mess and we have a dozen pictures of holy men plus non-stop incense, it's not going to make a big difference. You know? <laughs> it's a big mess with plus 12 pictures. So that, this part, this part, we can be very casual about it, but it's a mistake. It's very important to make space for ourselves inside and to have the practice flourish. And it helps us being more relaxed in the, in the, in the life, uh, uh, in the sitting. Um, and in um, having more space, having more space means not only having more time, for instance, for the practice, but also having more time and peace for the sake of peace. For instance, uh, just small things can help. If, we ta- if it takes 30 minutes to go from this place to another place, we should take 45 minutes. That's a way of having more peace. But if we, as we often do, take 20, then it's going to be tense. And, you know, one tension plus another tension plus another tension. And after a few days, our practice is gone. How come? It's very clear why. You know, it's all this building up. The work we do. It might be a work which either is conducive, it's along the line of the Dharma, or at least it doesn't interfere with our uh, walking on the path. But it may also be a very taxing and demanding job, and maybe it can happen in a very toxic social environment. Now, if this is the case, and if we are getting more and more committed to the practice, it's good that we think seriously about the situation. Maybe less money and more peace and freedom it may, it may be much better. There is also a subtle mistake that people on the path can make. The environment is toxic. There is like um, wrong speech, wrong action, and uh, whatever, just taking turns frantically. And we say, well, I have the practice. This is a challenge for me. Up to a point, but beyond a certain threshold, we can't take it. It's too much. We're going to get poisoned. So we have to be very realistic in terms of how much we can take and then decide. You know, wisdom is discernment. Wisdom is knowing our limitations. Simplifying our life is very important for the practice. As we were saying, there is a certain amount of renouncement which has to take place, like just letting the dry branches uh, fall away. Sometimes it's not so easy because it may happen that certain activities Really, it's them which renounce us. 
it's not us renouncing them. Because of the practice, in other words, something dies on us. And a part of us may be not prepared for that. But it may happen. And after a while we realize that it is okay, that actually there is more space now in, in our life. But we should be prepared for uh, frustrations of this kind. And this takes us to the third part, which is people relations. Now this too, on the one hand, is pretty obvious, but on the other hand, it's not. And th there can be a lot of casualness about dealing with this chapter. Let us, let us first consider that uh, very few people can be hermits. I was once talking with someone in Europe, and this person was very competent in the situation in Europe, so in the uh, Christian uh, area. And he said, talking about hermits, I would say that 25% are pure gold, and the rest he didn't say, but it was obviously implied, different degrees of craziness. Now, also was very clear that the number was not so high. So the total number was not so high. So 25% means very few, okay? Very few who made it. And therefore we need affection. We need support, be it family, uh, partner, close community, religious community, or lay community. Something which seems not to be always grasped is that the spiritual seeker, on the one hand, needs less support because of the very great support that the practice is. But on the other hand, he or she very easily can need more support precisely because of the fact of being a spiritual seeker. We might easily sooner or later find ourselves in some sort of a no man's land if pursuits, activities, occupation which once used to be uh, important for us die out for us, we might feel very isolated. And that can be hard. And a support is very important. I remember an engineer who in his 50s decided to switch from being a very successful engineer, engineer to being a, a, a carpenter. And it took him a couple of years to do this major transition. And he said very honestly, if I hadn't had a very affectionate family, I doubt I would have made it because it was very difficult. It had been two very hard years. And the practice had been very much helped by this affective support. But spiritual seekers can sometimes be casual and not think enough of how much important this is for the development of, of the practice. And also, what help can come from, for instance, a solid, affectionate relationship. 
You know, a relationship means that you are accepted, mind and body. I mean, a full relationship with affectionate sexuality in it. That you are accepted, mind and body, by another person. And you, in turn, can accept totally mind and body, another person, another human being. Now, this is like a little miracle because it infuses everything we do with acceptance. So it can be a very great help for the practice, for infusing the practice with acceptance. Because from accepting, you know, mentally and physically, and from feeling accepted mentally and physically, we open up to other human beings as well, to the world, to the situations as well. So if it is kept in this Dharma perspective, a strong relationship is a very great help for the practice. Of course, a relationship means that friction, problems are generated. It is in its nature. But if it is in the Dharma, and if it is, you know, with this strong mutual acceptance, it will provide also the instruments to work with the friction. So it's not only producing friction and problems, but it's also uh, providing uh, the means to work with this. So in itself, it's a practice. I think that if we care about these three areas, our practice back home is greatly facilitated. And by practice I mean daily sitting practice and more and more uh, extended informal practice. Now there are meditators who only come to retreats and they don't have a daily practice. It's good. It's infinitely better than nothing. But it's a little bit of survival practice, like one gets good fruits from a retreat and then one lives on those fruits and at one point uh, things go bad again and uh, let's go into another retreat, get some oxygen, go out and, and so on. I guess at one point we might consider uh, having something more continuous and adding a daily sitting practice. Uh, I remember the teacher I first studied the Dharma and practiced the Dharma with Suzuki Roshi was fond of saying that Zazen, that the daily meditation practice is like a soup which every year becomes more tasty, you know, tastier and tastier. You just sit, you know, you would say also sit down, sit still, sit long, okay? And so the soup becomes tastier and tastier as the year go by, which means that something very solid is now in our lives. And we are not afraid of you know, losing interest for this and that. Actually, we lose interest because we have something much more reliable in our life. And the daily sitting practice is the strong basis for daily informal practice, by which I mean 
more and more finding ways of exercising awareness during the day in a real and factual way which takes a good deal of right effort, of right determination and, and, and means, you know, finding support, meditation groups, intensive practice. I see like intensive practice here, daily practice here and then informal daily practice here. Without this basis, without its roots into intensive practice and into daily practice, informal daily practice is a joke you know, just doesn't work, or it's just rhetoric, or I'm aware most of the time. It's not true, you know. <laughs> like cultivating metta, meditation on loving-kindness, as something which we bring along with us where, wherever we go. Cultivating uh, mindfulness of aversion, mindfulness of speech, mindfulness of our reactions, mindfulness of our reactive mind, of ways in which selfing, as uh, it is said, happens all day long. So, for instance, we take a bus in the morning and we practice metta while riding that bus. Then we, de we get off the bus and maybe we go into a library now, going to a library means meeting with an employee or librarian, and we can have that uh, meeting in a mindful and loving kindness way, or it can just be taken for granted. The big difference. In the first case, we have, in technical terms, there is a seed of unwholesomeness, uh, un, un, of distraction, of, of something which is not wholesome and in the second case we are planting a seed which is wholesome just uh, greeting that person with mindfulness and with loving kindness and when we ask for the books and while we're waiting for the books we practice and then we get the books and we start working and then the reading is our breath. Whenever we get distracted, we go back to reading. And we use that as our, our focus. And, you know, the more wholeheartedly we are without the task at hand, the better. Maybe we have reactions to our research and we infuse those reactions with mindfulness. It takes a long time for a daily practice like this, you know, to be, to be started and to be developed. But more and more, we feel that we prefer doing like this. So maybe the first year is an effort, the second year a little less, until, you know, we, we find like we were off-center, if for some reason maybe we are, uh, we are having a flu and we, we are just drifting away with our mind all the time, as we used to do. What happens? When this uh, gets a certain momentum, this is a very clear sign, uh, 
we start having the same feeling that we have after we have been working at something we are interested in and we have skills for. Say we spend the morning working our intellectually or with our hands at something we are skilled for. And maybe the work was easy or maybe it was difficult, but at the end of the morning we'll have a certain feeling of fullness, of satisfaction, a taste, which is distinctly different from the feeling that we have after, you know, idling either in an unpleasant way or after idling in a pleasant way. Two different energy fields. And then there is this energy field of having worked at something we are interested in and we feel more and more skilled at. We have this feeling which of course strengthens our motivation and makes the practice more and more natural, more and more organic. Basically you wake up and uh, you start working and you work with everything and nothing is wasted. So it is a very special kind of work. And more and more, see in a famous passage of the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha talks about the, once again, kilesas, in a very interesting way. He says, attachment is kinchana. Kinchana means something a thing, something. Aversion is kinchana. Delusion is kinchana, something. The seeker, in order to get to freedom, wants to become a kinchana, without something, free. See, in other words, the reacting mind as being something which constantly obstructs the free space inside, the mind which is luminous and which is intrinsically and naturally luminous. And, that, and then there is this something which covers the mind, this kinchana, this something. Even we, if we don't have a, a great deal of practice, if we just think sometime in the morning we uh, wake up and for a few seconds the mind is free and we haven't got to self-remembrance yet, yet. So there is this space and then all of a sudden a little ripple, a little bit of a concern comes in. And with it, all the rest, that, all, all the other things, all the other kinchana, all the other kilesas start getting in. And atta, I and mine, comes to the foreground. Okay. The practice is more and more, it seems to me, melting this something, this kinchana this 
constantly recurring abstraction. Can we see for a few seconds? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.